I love that song. That song gets me every time. Um, it's just good to know that with all that life brings, we can rest in the great I am. Well, since Philemon is such a long book, we decided to take a break. <laughs> no, not really. Um, Scott Andrews is out of town this week, so uh, I was preparing the sermon this week. And Lord willing, we will finish Philemon next week. Uh, Lord willing. He may or may not will. I don't know. <laughs> but if you've got your Bibles this morning, I would love for you to turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. That's right. We're going to Revelation. No book in the Bible has caused more curiosity, more confusion, and more disagreement than the book of Revelation. Some people are obsessed with the book and tend to spend all of their time trying to crack some code. And, and these people have done some pretty crazy things over the years. These are the kinds of people who see things in their toast and freak out at the grocery store if the total has three consecutive sixes. Others are so, so scared and baffled by Revelation that they try to avoid the book completely. For them, the book of Revelation is like that, that really awkward cousin we try to forget exists. Neither one of these approaches is uh, a good approach to the book of Revelation. Neither approach is helpful to the Christian life. God put it in the Bible so it must have truth that he intends for us to build our lives on now but God put, put 65, other books, uh, of 65 other books in the Bible uh, as well. And he clearly wants us to feast on other portions of Scripture too. Now there's no denying that the book of Revelation is the most complicated book of the Bible. In terms of literary genre, it's actually some combination of three things. It's a letter to the seven churches in Asia. It's an apocalypse. And it's a prophecy. Originally, John wrote this book uh, to encourage and challenge a group of churches who were enduring persecution. And his call was to, to push through and overcome the trials. And really the central truth of Revelation is Jesus is victorious, so don't quit. Jesus has secured victory. And this original message is still true for us today. Do you feel like you're the only one at school living for Jesus. Don't quit. Do you feel like disease has decimated your daily routine? Don't quit. God is going to reward his followers and heaven will not have hospitals. Amen. The book of Revelation is also an apocalypse. That's a literary genre that was very common from about 200 BC to around 350 AD. The word carries the idea of unveiling something that was hidden. It's a type of writing that we're really not familiar with today. I suppose like Frank Peretti or science fiction, it, it might give us some sort of an idea of what apocalyptic literature is like. But unless you're a PhD in, in literature, you're probably not super familiar with this kind of writing. It's a very unique style of writing. The book of Revelation is also a prophecy. It, language contains a lot of Old Testament imagery uh, and explains the fulfillment of some prophecy and foretells some things yet to come. And these are just some of the reasons why it's such a complicated book. 
Add to that the fact that there's a great deal of symbolism in the book. There are at least four categories of symbolism in this book. You've got objects such as a sword or, or lampstands. You've got numbers like 7, 12, and 666, and 144,000. You've got events, and usually the events are, are catastrophic type events. And you've got creatures, and usually these creatures sound a little bit weird. These are all used symbolically throughout the book. John is like an artist, but instead of using paint, he uses words. The symbols are intended to convey ideas that fuel our faith and remind us that God is good and Christ's victory is certain. Way too many people read way too much into the symbols that we find in Revelation. I remember when I was a little boy, the pastor of the church I was attending did a series on the book of Revelation. By the time he was done, I was absolutely terrified of heaven. And I was absolutely terrified of hell. Heaven had all these multi-eyed creatures from like some sort of bad dream. And hell had Satan. On top of that, uh, living on earth didn't sound all that great either because there was going to be this terrible war where everyone died. I had no idea what to do. I was, very, uh, I was very disturbed. So what's a little boy to do? I just decided to play baseball and try to be number seven because that sounded like a really good number. <laughs> I don't know that's what the pastor intended, but that's what I walked away with at that particular moment in my life. My goal this morning is not to answer all of your questions about Revelation. There's no way I could do that in one sermon. Nor is my goal to frighten all of the children. I just want to frighten some of them. No. My goal is to proclaim Jesus Christ as the only one who's worthy of worship. And my goal is to show you how a group of people can be unified and experience community in the midst of corporate worship. If one of our pursuits at Alliance this year is to strengthen our connection to one another and build community, then we must discover how corporate worship helps foster that, helps lay a foundation for that. And I think Revelation 5 will do that for us. So let me read it, and then we'll dive into it. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign 
on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that you have spoken to us in Revelation 5. Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your message this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit bit of background for you. In chapter 1, John introduces this revelation that he has received from God, and he provides us some context for his experience. uh, Revelation 2 and 3 are direct messages to the seven churches, and and how we're to understand uh, those churches and those messages is for another time. Chapter 4 and 5 actually go together. It's our first glimpse into heaven. We get to see God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son in wondrous glory. We get to see worship taking place in heaven, and we get to see the heart of God and his ultimate purpose in all of history. Chapter 4 records John's vision of God Almighty, our holy creator, who is surrounded by majestic beauty and unceasing worship, and rightly so. He's worthy. He is great and sovereign, and the only proper response is worship. Chapter 5 records John's vision of God the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, so that salvation could be secure for all those who repent and believe. Jesus is worshiped by all creation, and rightly so. He is worthy. Now, while God is eternally worshiped in heaven, I believe Revelation 4 and 5 is ultimately a future moment of worship that we get to see before it actually happens. When we sang this morning, we joined heavenly worship that was already in progress. But future moments of worship will occur in heaven, and I believe the worship in chapter 4 and 5 is yet to come. Since this vision moves on to the breaking of each seal and ultimately to the close of history. Now, having said that, it's not exactly as cut and dry as that, but I don't want to go into all of the, the reasons why right now. It's, let's just keep it simple and say it's kind of like going back to the future. If you were around my age or older, you might remember the Michael J. Fox trilogy. It's kind of like that, all right? Revelation is written as something that's going to happen in the future, but it is also, in a sense, something where we're looking back to see how things play out in the end. We're looking ahead of how things will happen, and at the same time, it's almost like we're seeing it after it's already finished. When it comes to understanding the book of Revelation, it, it seems to me that we, if, we, if we press in on timing too much, like good Americans we are likely to miss the truth that's supposed to help us walk this Christian life. The book of Revelation isn't just supposed to answer a bunch of end-time questions. It's supposed to fuel our faith for today. So here's how we're going to move through this passage. 
First, we're going to look at three pillars of truth that we see in Revelation 5. We're going to see that we have a sovereign Lord who reigns supreme. We have a Savior Lamb who is worthy of our worship. And we have a glorious God praised by multitudes. Then, I want to show you four results of corporate worship that I think lay a foundation for community. We'll see that we are united in our need. We'll see that we are united in our confession. We're united in our salvation. And we're united in our praise. Now, if you're paying really close attention, three points plus four points is seven. The perfect number of revelation. I am so proud of that. The first thing we see in Revelation 5 is that we have a sovereign Lord who reigns supreme. The chapter opens with God Almighty sitting on a throne. He is sitting because he is in complete control. This is the ultimate throne. This is the oval office of the universe. In the hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll. The scroll with its seven seals is the plan and purposes of God for the end of time. He holds it because he wrote it. All of the struggles and all of the victories that come in the last days are written on this scroll. All of the details have been predetermined. Think of Psalm 139, verse 16, where David said, Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. If that's true for David... It's true for you and me. Every day of our life and everyone's life is in his hand. And this is true of the end times as well. An angel booms forth with the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And instantly it becomes clear that no one in heaven and no one on earth is able which causes John to crumble into despair and and weeping because it appears to him that the plans of God, namely his judgments and his salvation, will not be carried out. But an elder, probably some high-ranking angel, steps forward and comforts John, and he tells him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a fulfillment of Genesis 49, 9 and 10, and the root of David, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, 1. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. We have a sovereign Lord who reigns supreme. His purposes will be accomplished. His power is unstoppable. That is why he is sitting. There is no panic button in heaven. The future of the universe is in his hand. This is why we worship him. Because every one of our days is in his hand. And for the believer, Romans 8 tells us that it will all work together in such a way that we will say, yes, you are good and you are love and you are God. This leads us to our second pillar of truth. We have a savior lamb who is worthy of our worship. A sudden shift takes place in Revelation 5. John is looking for a lion, but his eyes land on a lamb. The lion is a lamb. The lamb is standing, but it looks as though it has been slain. This is our Savior. This is Jesus. He can approach the throne. He can open the seal. He can break the seals and open the scroll. Now, this description of this slain lamb is interesting. 
He has seven horns and seven eyes. But don't try to to literally visualize a seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb that is bloody. You miss the point of the symbolism if you do that. This is apocalyptic language. As a child, I got a very scary image of Jesus that was not helpful. You can go meet Jesus in heaven. I don't want to. (laughs) The seven horns symbolize the perfect irresistible strength of Christ. The seven eyes symbolize the perfect knowledge and insight that cover the earth. John uses language and a literary style that seems so strange to us. But here is what he is saying. Nobody was worthy to step forward but Jesus. And Jesus is about to deal with everything perfectly and carry out the final plans of God. Total justice and merciful salvation are coming. This is why Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is the Lamb of God who saves Sinners. When he steps forward and takes the scroll, all of heaven erupts into worship. This might be the greatest scene of worship ever recorded in the Bible. The living creatures and the elders fall down before Christ with their harps, with their instruments. It'd be like if the worship team just all fell down with their guitars but kept playing. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? That's kind of what happens here. And they're singing of the Lamb's worth. They also have golden bowls of incense, and the scripture tells us that these are the prayers of the saints. There's a lot of ideas about which prayers those are. Are they the your kingdom come prayers, or are they other prayers? All it says is that it's the prayers of the saints, so let me just keep it simple. This is where your prayers land, at the feet of Jesus. Our prayers might be mocked on earth, but they are heard in heaven and they are sorted out perfectly at the time where Christ makes everything right. Have you ever felt like your prayers must have just floated off into space? My brothers and sisters, they have not. They are a part of one of the most incredible moments of eternity when everything is made right. And this eruption of worship, it includes a new song. Psalm 98.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Every new act of mercy calls forth a new song of gratitude and praise. There, is, there are not enough worship songs to worship our God. 10,000 times 10,000 new songs would not suffice as a complete hymnal for our God. Heaven is erupting with new songs because Jesus is worthy. And notice what this new song says. We see in this song three reasons why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and carry out the plans. First, he was slain. This is presented here as a historical fact. It's the heart of the gospel. Victory over Satan and sin was achieved by Christ through sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53. Secondly, this sacrificial act is what purchased us. It is how he redeemed us. Think Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Think 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. 
The purpose of Jesus being slain was to be our Savior and to pay our debt. He is worthy of our worship because of the redemption he brought. And notice that part of God's intention was to redeem a diversity of people. We're going to come back to that. Third, he has made the purchased ones a kingdom and priests. So we have the act, he's slain. We have the purpose of the act, that's redemption. And we have the result of the act, we are a kingdom, we are priests. Sinners being made saints results in a new kingdom, a new people. That's a corporate reality, that's a corporate result. And we as a kingdom reign together with him. A sinner being made a saint results in him or her being a priest. That means that we are a servant of God and we have access to God. Each and every one of us individually. We're a servant of God. We have access to God. And together we're a body. Together we're a kingdom. Our sovereign Lord reigns Supreme, Our Savior, Lamb, is worthy of worship because of what he has achieved. And as these truths are celebrated in heaven, a ripple effect occurs throughout the universe. The worship of Christ moves into ever-widening circles. And this brings us to our third pillar. We have a glorious God worshipped by multitudes. The worship in heaven now includes countless multitudes of angels. They sing a song that celebrates seven qualities of Christ, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Jesus perfectly embodies all of those qualities. And the worship expands even more. Verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in and says, to him who sits on the throne, that's God Almighty, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In chapter 4, God the Father is worshipped as sovereign creator. In chapter 5, Jesus is worshipped as the Redeemer. It, be, it ends in chapter 5 with both being ascribed the same qualities. I believe the Spirit is, is present as well in this scene. We've got our triune God worshipped in heaven. And the plan of God carried out by the lion and the lamb assures that the course of history and that which is yet to come is secure. Multitudes worship our sovereign God who reigns supreme. Our Savior Lamb has made it possible. We worship him because he is worthy. And in that act of corporate worship and in our act of corporate worship, I believe there's at least some foundational truths that we can build on for community. I'm reading a book right now on leadership in a military context. I'm thinking about making some changes in the youth ministry. <laughs> Just kidding, sort of. <laughs> I read a chapter on combat this week. Listen to what I read. The battlefield is cold. It is the lonesomest place which men share together. It is the lonesomest place which men share together. It's a chapter that discusses the emotional and the psychological toll that comes in the midst 
of a battlefield. And it discusses this, this reality that they, they call tunnel vision. Tunnel vision occurs when a soldier can't see the whole picture of the battlefield. They might not even be able to see their fellow soldier who's only a few feet away from them and what their fellow soldier is dealing with because they're so consumed with what's right in front of them. It's a reality that occurs in battle. When I got done with this chapter, I sat there wondering. I wonder if Satan's subtle tactics have affected this church's community such that we feel cold and alone together. Now, I know we felt cold, right? It's a nice break this week. (laughs) I think it's coming back. But I wonder if sometimes we as individuals are struggling with tunnel vision. We can't see what our brother or our sister is dealing with because we're so consumed with what we are dealing with. There's a a number of tactics that can be used to address this, and I think a multitude of approaches is appropriate. But how does corporate worship, how does what we're doing this morning, how's what we're going to do tonight, how does that help build community in such a way that we stop feeling alone together? I think the worship we see in Revelation 5 provides us a starting point to understanding this. So let me... Show them to you quickly. Four results of corporate worship that lay a foundation for community. Number one, we are reminded that we are united in our need. None of us is worthy of being worshipped. No one here could open the scroll. We are sinners made saints by the Lamb. And the Lamb is not prejudiced in any way. He sought and he bought sinners from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He delights in diversity. He died for it. He sought and he bought the highly educated and the dropout. He sought and he bought the rich and the poor. He sought and he bought the vice president and the fast food worker. If Jesus died to create a diverse kingdom, ethnically, racially, socially, it must mean it is eternally important to him. And if we ignore that desire, we're ignoring something that is at the very heart of our salvation. If saving a diverse people and uniting them into a kingdom was costly to Christ, it's likely going to be costly to us as well. But it's worth the effort. And there's some realities and some experiences in the midst of that that can't be met anywhere else. There's a kind of comparison that is really unhealthy. Comparing ourselves to one another can kill community. Comparing ourselves to each other can lead us to pride because we think we're better than others and we're a little more worthy of salvation or to despair because we think we aren't as good as other people. Either way, the relationships can be hurt when comparison happens. Before God, we're all sinners. We're all in the same sinking boat. And if we're saved, we're all saved in the same way by grace alone. The gospel destroys rank, it destroys race, and it puts all of us on the same level. We have the same need. Gathering like this and doing what we do is supposed to remind us that we all have the exact same need. 
rich or poor, young or old, we all have the same need, no matter how different we are. Recognizing this week after week, it positions us for connecting to people who have very different backgrounds and very different present circumstances. Two, we're reminded that we're united in our confession. Our confession is kind of like a creed. It's a statement of beliefs. By coming to the word week after week, by submitting to it, by fleshing it out and applying it in our homes and in our life groups, we are uniting ourselves in a common worldview. I know that a church this large isn't going to agree on every single practical implication of the gospel and how to apply it. But we can all run in the same direction. and We can all encourage one another as we run in the same race. Our confession is that Jesus Christ is worthy, worthy of everything we have. Third, we're reminded in corporate worship that we're united in our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. We will be together for all eternity and each one of us is a servant of God right now. We have different roles. We have different gifts. We have different responsibilities. We have different schedules. We have unique circumstances. There's a diversity that brings strength to this community and glory to God. Our individual strengths and weaknesses, they rub up against each other in community and they move us toward the cross as iron sharpens iron. Corporate worship, in a sense, is like a break in the battle so that everyone can huddle together, get instructions, reload, remind each other of the goal, and then re-engage in the mission, which will send us to different battle stations. And in that battle station, we will likely feel Moments of cold loneliness together. I think those moments, I think Jesus wants to connect with him in those moments. Because he knows that cold, lonely feeling better than any of us. It's what he felt on the cross while he was dying for us. Tunnel vision happens in battle. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a student or an executive or a retiree, you are in a battle, but you are not alone. Satan's subtle tactics might make you feel forgotten or arrogant or insecure. And if he does that, he's severed your worship and he's severed community. May his tactics fail with us this week. Fourth and finally, we're reminded that we are united when we praise. This picture of, of heaven in Revelation 5 is awesome. The universe is singing to God. The command to sing occurs dozens and dozens of times in Scripture. It's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's commanded. And there's something unifying about singing. When I look over and I see a brother or sister in Christ whom I deeply respect singing to God, it draws me to them and it draws me to, to God. When I see a brother or sister singing to God who I know has had a really hard season, I see them singing, it draws me to them and it draws me to God. These are foundations that are laid in these kinds of gatherings that we build on throughout the week. 
Jesus is worthy of our worship because he's the lion and the lamb who redeems a diverse people and then unites them in powerful ways. May we feel that and experience that now, remembering that we're still in the battle and we're not in heaven yet. But when we get there, it will be wonderful. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending the lion and the lamb. For saving us and giving us the joy of praising you together. Help us in our individual battles. And help us to come together as a body and praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.